It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to welcome Reza Nakai to the show. He's a professor of sociology at the University of Windsor, and his research interests center around the issues of diversity, uh, equity, and justice, as well as cultural and political forces that produce and reproduce inequality. And he has published extensively in Canada and in, in international journals, and he is uh, presently evaluating the impact of COVID-19 related to government policies on mental health and uh, newcomer immigrant and refugee uh, youth. Welcome to the show, uh, Reza. Thank you very much, David, for having me. It's, a, it's our pleasure. And uh, we are here uh, mostly to talk about uh, an article that you co-authored uh, in the conversation about Black Lives Matter and movements that find new urgency and allies because of COVID-19. Um, and I guess that makes some sense because of the lockdown of COVID-19 and the unfortunate uh, events that have happened, specifically uh, George Floyd and his death that was brought to the world's attention uh, through uh, the viral video that was captured on a phone and then sent out and uh, everyone was able to to see that uh, it sparked so much uh, interest and also outrage uh, around the globe. Uh, now, what what you're saying, and, and it does make, of course, some some sense that because of the lockdown, because people had the time and could pay attention to this, they weren't going about their daily lives. They had that time to then uh, pay more attention to the to the things that they were seeing. So they had time to to participate to. I guess, in some ways, it is, is it fair to say that this is um, somewhat of a, of a, you know, I don't want to say it's it's good news, but it 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 has allowed people to to at least make their voices heard on, on and and make their outrage known uh, on something that may not have happened had we not been in a lockdown situation. Well, that's true, David. Uh, you know, whenever there are a lot of injustices or people experience injustices. And as you know very well, this is more common, most common among uh, uh, minorities. Uh, in Canada, we have indigenous people. In the United States, we have uh, black people. And of course, other group of people in Canada, we call the visible minorities or Spaniards, etc. in the United States. Whenever there are any kind of injustices, this kind of simmers under the fire. It's like a, a fire which is covered by ashes. It's there all the time. And we have mm. had this for a long time in the United States. We have had a lot of problem in Canada. Uh, for example, uh, in the case of indige indigenous people in Canada, we have significant experience. They have significantly uh, have been experiencing all kinds of discrimination and equities. Uh, they, uh, if my data is correct, they are more likely than any other group of people to be stopped and searched by the police. In addition, historically and at the present time, they have uh, uh, lack of access to basic necessities of uh, life, such mm. as water. Mm -hmm. um, they have higher level of poverty. Uh, they have more health conditions. Uh, they're less likely to have access to protective equipments for COVID. Mm. And of course, uh, when they are affected, they're less likely to 
uh, receive the necessary health care. And this is a case of the indigenous people in Canada, but similar pattern is in the United States. So we have uh, inequities, we have injustices, we have uh, uh, poverty, uh, and then we have this spark. And to me, this spark was very important because if you look at that video and first time I saw it, it almost like a, a public lynching. It, mm. uh, it gives you a visceral impression of public lynching. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I remember seeing the case of uh, Chief Allen, uh, Adam, where the police rush out of the car, seeing the camera, uh, and just punch him in the face and put him down and punch him again down there. Yeah. So these are not a good feeling when uh, people watch them. These yeah. are the grievances that people have. But by themselves, they are not necessary. Uh, enough to create any kind of movement, any kind of demonstrations. They are the amber under the uh, ashes, if, uh, if you like. So Spark ignited that uh, ashes, but we have had Sparks before, uh, again, in the United States and in Canada, when you, when you think about the cases of uh, 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 Eric Garner or mm. Trevor Martin in the United States, and we had cases of uh, Chantal Moore, Dale uh, Culliver. These are there, again, that's mm -hmm. uh, it's important. What is really needed, and it, I think in this case, what COVID helped a lot was that extra time. And I'd say extra time was one among many factors. Uh, people usually, when they're unemployed, uh, they work for home. Uh, this, this means that they have more, uh, uh, more time uh, or less exhausted from everyday activity. They have more mm. time to uh, do what they think is... Uh, uh, related to justice of one kind, related to inequity of some kind, to police brutality, so they're more likely to participate. So COVID had, because of government lockdown, because of social distancing, ensured that large group of people becoming uh, unemployed, not having a job, not working. And of course, as you know, this hit uh, African-Americans the most, especially mm -hmm. the young people and African-American people. Mm -hmm. They were more likely to work on... Uh, uh, you know, services jobs and service and hospitality jobs, and those are the jobs where, which was first affected more than other, any other jobs. So unemployment gave them the time. Of course, that was one of the factors, as we said. Yes. There are other factors. Uh, I, I think ma ma the masks was was also very important there. Uh, mm. uh, if you know, we know, we know very well that the uh, police is always a look uh, on the lookout for people who violate the rules of any kind. Mm. And uh, I, I always remember the case of the Vancouver riot where the uh, people were demonstrating and some of them started to either burn the car, police cars, or j go jump on the top of the car and uh, right. start to take picture of themselves. And they put their picture on the Facebook. Of course, guess right. what's going to happen right after? <laughs> sure. Police officer <laughs> went after them through the Facebook, find them, identify them, and uh, find and arrested them. Mm. Mask give that Anonymity, anonymity needed for mm -hmm. people who participate not to be recognized by the police. It, well, that, that's interesting because, you know, that anonymity you're, you're referring to is even, even for people that, uh, you know, and you're referring to people, but taking part in a protest isn't necessarily uh, going against the rules. It's, it's voicing one's opinion and, and, and I believe they're, they're allowed. It, it's the, the ones that that maybe will be going beyond the protest, maybe, you know, cause a harm to property, et cetera. The ones that really need to watch out, I guess, for that. But uh, there is what you're, you're also suggesting though, is that 
there is that concern simply by being there, uh, that by getting your, your uh, face recognized, that that might be remembered by some officer and associated then with uh, troublemaking. And then at a future event, perhaps that, ah, that might trigger something in the back of the officer's mind that this person is a troublemaker when they may not be at all just simply voicing their, their, uh, their opinion at, at, a, at a demonstration of some kind. That's true, David. I mean, people who follow the rules and they are involved in uh, peaceful uh, demonstrations, which is being recognized and permitted by the, by the security establishment, uh, are not necessarily targeted. Uh, mm -hmm. There are a couple of things involved in this. You may be inadvertently involved in a, some kind of uh, rule breaking. You're not involved, right. but you're caught in the camera in that yep. moment for whatever reason. The other mm -hmm. thing is also important to remember that police officers or the security forces do not necessarily always look at the people who violate the rules. They, they, sure. they would like to recognize who violate the rules by paying attention to the person who is beside them, who mm. may not be involved directly. Then mm -hmm. they interview them and try to figure out who these people are. Right. So if you're, if, in a sense, if you don't, if you're not violating the rules, you could be nevertheless indirectly targeted for some kind of questioning. But I think the most important thing was most people were, uh, they didn't want to be under any circumstances to be recognized if the people were using the mask for, for this purpose, mm -hmm. do not mm -hmm. be recognized by security forces at all. And and so I, I, it encouraged I, I, them to be more yes. involved. I'm not saying that's the main reason, but it right. helped them to uh, have less apprehension, if you like. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, yeah, and so that, uh, as you say, is the spark uh, of, of what happened in these situations that allowed people to then, uh, that ignited this around the, around the world and people participated, kept this moving forward. And, and that the fact that we are still in this situation uh, in, in, for the for the most part, allows the uh, the spark to continue. That that further protests and and further uh, opinions can be expressed in public fashions because people have the time to do so. True. Uh, I mean, t again, time is important, and also as uh, compared to all the other cases that we had, which there was a spark on it. This is more enduring. Mm -hmm. And it is not just specific to United States. We saw that mm -hmm. spreading across uh, the world like a wildfire. A lot of people mm -hmm. were involved. In. So COVID gave them the necessary fuel for the fire yeah. to start to hit the forest, if you like. But as I say, I mean, time was important through unemployment. Spark was important. Anonymity was important. But there was something else. I mean, a couple of other things was happening at the same time. I think this was a perfect storm for demonstration. Mixed mm -hmm. messages was very important. Right. Uh, if, if you look at the, all the comments made with, by the President uh, Trump, World Health Organizations, or various other governments officials, you would notice that the messages was going back and forth. There was a lot of flip-flop. Mask is important. Mask is not important. It's going to go away. Maybe it's not going to go away. We're going to go back to work. Maybe you're going to have to until fall, etc. And mm. this kind of this kind of flip-flop in a, a specific United States, given that the, the, the elites, the, go, the, the ruling elites are divided across the party line, Democrats versus Republicans, gave people an option, if you like, the opportunity to make their own decisions rather than relying on the, on the elites, rather than relying on the leaders. So uh, it helped them, um, if you like, Take, uh, take advantage of the flip-flop 
lack of decision, mm. lack of leadership to make their own decision. And that helps them to be more likely to be frustrated, uh, less likely to listen to the, the leaders. And this brings me to the question of frustrations. This is, I think, is also psychologically was very important, which helped uh, people uh, to get involved. Mm. I, I don't know if you noticed this, but I felt like I'm cooped up in my home. Mm. Uh, uh, and when, when the government policies came in effect uh, uh, to social distancing um, or the kind of bubbles that they ask us to follow, um, many people were unable to visit their loved ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were unable to do things that they used to do. You know, the apprehension mm-hmm. that you get to just get out of the house and do your shopping. Mm-hmm. And that's, pay, that's kind of uh, creates some form of prostration just by itself. Um, mm. In addition, there was uncertainty due to misinformation. <laughs> there was all kind right. of conspiracy uh, theories right. in place. If you remember, uh, yep. whether there's a, a Five G was involved in it, but there's a Chinese did it. Yes. Now recently, they're talking about the, it started in Spain. All kind of misinformation that increased the frustrations of the people. Um, but if you think about it, a couple of other things was added to this frustration. Black people were more likely to die from yes. COVID than any other group of people. Yes, and that uh, that kind of. Uh, uh, if, if you think about it, added to systematic systemic racism and poverty, mm. uh, uh, being disadvantaged, lack of access to healthcare, or being denied healthcare, that increased their frustration in, 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 on top of that. And I think also other people, not necessarily black people, uh, uh, they were in a, uh, under a state of endless uh, suspension. They don't know... Um, Who's going to become sick? Are they going to become sick next? Uh, are they going to die next? Uh, what information is true? What information is false? Uh, when things are going to start to get to the normal level than it used to be, these all create anxiety. And a lot of studies shows that during the COVID, the level of anxiety increased significantly, especially among the minorities. Uh, so uh, frustrations, added to uh, mixed messages, added to extra time, helped the dynamity, that helped the movement to become widespread, to mm. become prolonged, to become more enduring. And of course, similar to previous cases, uh, social networks were important. I mean, Facebooks, if you like, or Instagrams, or uh, any kind of uh, uh, Twitter feeds, etc., created a large group of people of similar-minded that they can help each mm-hmm. other, get encouraged by each other, and get participated. Of course, this was before too, you know. Right. But um, uh, the, the spread of the uh, social media, I think, has increased significantly in recent years. That helped in addition to what we have. Together, I think the perfect storm emerged. We have grievances added to extra time, added to frustration, added to anonymity, and existence of uh, social uh, Networks coupled with these visceral images of public lynching. I think right. that just got together at one time and helped this um, movement uh, spread fast and become more enduring. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. Type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
It is a pleasure to have with us on the show Reza Nakai, and he is a professor of sociology at the University of Windsor. We will be right back after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. It is a pleasure to have with us on the show Reza Nakai, and he is a professor of sociology at the University of Windsor, and his research interests on the centers of around issues of diversity, equity, and justice, and cultural and political forces that produce and reproduce inequity. Uh, Reza, it's, it's interesting you point out that inequity, and, and that you talked about systemic racism, and that is, of course, something that has, has really come out of uh, all of this, all the protests, the, the, the terrible, unfortunate death of or George Floyd and recent others after that as well, uh, pointing out, and we've had political leaders, uh, at least in, in Canada, talk about this, address it. Some changes are being made, uh, and, and, but it's, it, it's scratching the surface, I guess, because this is, in many ways, uh, the policies that are written uh, the wording that is that was chosen to go into these policies and things have been written in a way that that they have that's what creates the the systemic racism is is the the wording and those wordings need to go back we have, and be looked at and changed. Um, of course, some of the some of the more recent changes that have been talked about, and I see some some police forces are, are now being I think it's Edmonton or Calgary uh, where they voted to actually. Uh, Reduce the the public purse of the of the police force uh, and, and defund them to some degree, so that that funding can go into other areas to help with uh, with people uh, in other areas. Um, so, I, I guess uh, how how do you how do you see this this helping or or moving forward? I think there are a couple of issues here. I mean, you can look at from the police forces point of view, or you can look at from a public point of view, or you can look at it from the people who are affected most from this. I think that one of the most, to, to me, and based on something I know a little bit uh, about crime and crime control, and this is nothing necessarily with crime, but from as far as the police forces are concerned, they consider mm. themselves as agents of crime and crime control. Mm. Um, for them, there is a culture that... Through statistics, they establish what group of people are generally more likely to be found in, in prison, for example, or encounter the, uh, the law. And mm. that in itself, what are the reason is not relevant to them because, for example, if poverty is the reason for a person to commit a crime and is unable to pay the fine and then end up in jail, then that person is a number which adds up a group's uh, total number uh, as being involved with the crime, uh, involved with, uh, involving crime, and therefore criminal justice system. So that create, because we deal with the statistic, we deal with the information available to them, it created, among other things, a police culture, a police culture mm-hmm. that lower classes, that Aboriginal people, sorry, Indigenous people, that Black peoples are more likely to be, uh, should I use the word criminal, uh, mm-hmm. and they're relying on statistics, evidence yeah. which is out there. They, and therefore, they have these attitudes that if they encounter something suspicious, which of a specific group of people, they're more likely that they have to check them. They're more likely to think that they're violent. Therefore, they need to more force against them. So this is from their point of view. Mm. Um, from the public's point, I, I say from the uh, people who are affected, from people who, they say, you know, this is called, basically, we call that a statistical discrimination. 
you're judging me based on the average of the group, which are mm-hmm. themselves is problematic to establish that average. Because mm-hmm. as I say, what are the reasons for these people to encounter the law or end up in prison? Those, pe- those cases, those systemic problems are often ignored. That's why they're dealing with the surface of the problem. Right. There are more people who commit crime and there are specific groups. Therefore, we need to target them. You would mm-hmm. notice, for example, more police forces are um, uh, police uh, uh, Cars are stationed in the area which people are generally in the uh, high rises, more poor, more overcrowded. And of course, if you hang around that area, you're more likely to encounter a problem. If right. they're likely to be uh, watching a group of people, that's likely to encounter that problem. So there is an element of police culture that generally perceives certain group of people are more likely, and therefore they are more likely to uh, look after them, process them, and that create, on the other side, why are you always targeting us? It create a little bit of, uh, if you like, I, wouldn't, I don't want to use the word violence, but a little bit of uh, anxiety, if you like, or feelings that we are always targeted, and that make me more confrontational. You come into my home, the first thing you do, you think I'm a, a criminal, and you have your hands on your gun. So that feel, it demeans me. And, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of studies shows, for example, in case of United States, police officers are more likely to uh, arrest uh, black people whom they think that they have uh, violent attitudes. They right. think that doesn't necessarily mean they do. So there is that element too. So these policies need to not only change in the funding procedures, and, but also has to be, uh, uh, if you like, police education. Mm. Uh, uh, it, uh, they have to target th- that culture specifically and identify that that's this case, this individual that they're dealing as a human being is not the same as all the other individuals that they have an image of and mm-hmm. a, stereoty- a stereotype that they build up. So that's the element of the culture element. The, the problem of systemic racism, I think, is the source of the problem in a sense that it produces inequity. It produces poverty. It produces food shortage for a group of food scarcity. It mm. diminishes social networks for the group, less people are interacting with them. Those become a source where could create uh, the, uh, the potential for law-breaking activities. If you do not deal with those problems, if you don't deal with the sources of systematic, systemic racism and systemic inequity, we would have this over and over because it doesn't go away unless we deal with the, the, the source of the problem. Mm. As far as government policies are concerned, I think it's good that they redirect the funding to areas which help uh, the, the group of people who are targeted, among other things. Uh, but I think governments should deal with uh, some more serious problems. And those serious problems are has to do with inequity, uh, mm. injustices, uh, and of course, uh, uh, um, educating police officers. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, you know, you raise the the point about uh, frustration, anxiety, uh, and and not being able to leave your home as part of the the, the shutdown forced us into this. Uh, and not to take away any of the importance of what is happening and and the uh, the attention that this has been given in terms of the George Floyd and and, and others uh, who who have been wrongfully. Uh, killed and and uh, their 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 lives are important. Absolutely. Uh, do you think that that frustration, though, on a personal level for people, 
um, that protests are a way for them to somewhat vent that frustration as well? That's an interesting question because that means that they do not necessarily believe in a cause. It's just mm. the psychological frustration that they experience because of the COVID. They just want to go out there and participate. Perhaps there mm. are some of that. Uh, yeah. For example, in the United States, there is always this issue, how dare you limit my right? Right. I mean, that could be that. But notice that even that, even though it seems like some element of frustration, but it's because they're talking about some level of injustice there. Mm-hmm. Even in that level, but yeah. it is possible that some people uh, that participate, and I'm not saying I, I would say overwhelming majority of people participate for cause. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, there are some people, and uh, those people even could be possibly, and I really don't have any statistics or data to rely on it, who are more likely to break the law mm. uh, by looting, etc. The yep. level of frustration, if you like, it's got now yep. become it both it both become real and it's psychological. Mm-hmm. But I really don't have any evidence to say that's the case or not. It would be interesting to find out the group of people who do those things are any different than the average person right. who participated in demonstration and uh, protest for just cause. Yeah, and and I think uh, you know in in raising that, it's just coming out of the discussion that we're having. I by no means wanted to take away the importance of, of any of the, of the people that are protesting for a cause. And the causes, of course, are good ones. And if I'm not mistaken, I think most of the protests that were uh, in, in regard to these issues have all been done in a very peaceful manner and, uh, and, and done so uh, in, in very, very uh, visual evidence of, of the cause yeah. and, and not for any other reason. You're right. And if you remember, most of the, if you like, violent and looting protest, uh, protest and demonstration took place in the early days. Mm-hmm. And that's the time that I'm talking about that visceral images of uh, public lynching. Everybody yes. was just yes. got a hit gut feelings that, you know what, this yep. is really a lynching. Yes. And, they, uh, and they had already experiences of other cases, whether yes. uh, uh, Taylor uh, or Martin, Trevor Martin or a gardening. And they had those experiences they've seen. Uh, those cases. And so they said, this is another case. And they, really, mm-hmm. there's no need to uh, think about that. We have to get involved in this. This the whole system, the whole society, the whole country is against us. That could be the beginning. And of course, it also could be because I'm thinking about the looting, because a lot of Black people were uh, uh, poor on average, and they sure. were more likely than any group of people to lose their job. Yes. Yes. For the necessity of life, that may have had yes. some impact on be breaking some of the, if you like, rules and laws. And as you mentioned, it was early days, and it was when emotions were running right. at, at extreme high levels uh, right. because of the injustice that, that we had seen. True. That's, that's the case, I think. Reza, it's been fascinating speaking with you. Uh, we look forward to speaking with you again on, on this topic, perhaps in the, in the future. David, it's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for all those nice questions, questions which made me think, and hope we talk to each other again. All right. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye. That's Reza Nakai. He's a professor of sociology at the University of Windsor. His research uh, is interested in the centers and issues around diversity, equity, and injustice, and cultural and political forces that produce and reproduce inequity. And uh, he is published extensively in Canada and internationally in journals, and he's presently evaluating the impact of COVID-19 related to government policies on mental health 
and of newcomer immigrant and refugee youth. And it was a pleasure having him on the show. And that's this part of the program. We want to thank you, our listeners, for listening, of course, each and every day. We will be right back after this, right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome Deanna Cordoba to the show. She's an assistant professor of global development studies at Queen's University. We're here to talk to her about an article she co-authored in the conversation. It's about indigenous and Afro-Brazilian lands that are under greater threat in Brazil, during the COVID-19 situation. And that is uh, from her article that that is written. It's because of the far-right government of Jar Bolsonaro uh, uh, and in Brazil that has used the COVID-19 pandemic as a smokescreen to undo environmental regulations and undermine the territorial rights of indigenous peoples and uh, traditional Afro-Brazilian communities in the Amazon. Deanna, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Now, before we go further, I, I, ha- I, I don't, if you don't mind me asking, this is a co-authored uh, article that you wrote in a conversation. Uh, the, the, the person that you co-authored with looks like he, an interesting person as well. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yes, uh, this is my student in Brazil. He's studying uh, on palm oil plantations in Afro-descending territories, studying mm. uh, Brazil are called Quilombola territories or Quilombola people, the descendants of uh, African slaves that escaped to the forest uh, mm. um, before uh, the abolition of the, the slavery. And he's studying... Uh, palm oil plantations in um, expansion in, in the state of Pará and the expansion of in those traditional territories. Uh, mm. He is also analyzing uh, the development of different infrastructure projects, especially mining and electricity, and how they are basically dispossessing uh, tra- um, Quilombola people. Mm. And, okay. and how did you... Uh, how did you come to uh, have a working relationship with him? Well, um, I'm now, I have a shared um, um, project, a research project on, uh, on palm oil plantations and mm. uh, how they affect uh, water, water mm. quality um, in uh, the Amazon. And we mm. are working with the Federal University of Pará to analyze basically uh, the effects of uh, palm oil plantations in communities who depend on, on water resources, especially uh, fishing and also water for uh, everyday life. Hmm. Mm. Uh, okay, great. Well, thank you for, for sharing that with us and, and letting us know about the, the how the team is working. I guess he's your, your on-site uh, uh, person on the ground there for you. Yes, we have uh, other two students working in uh, more the biophysical part of uh, water and natural resource degradation in Brazil. Yeah. So coming back to the article, uh, it, it sounds like, um, you know, it, it, 
it sounds like it's it's uh, an unfortunate situation that COVID nineteen has presented for the indigenous people in in Brazil and the Amazon uh, that you're referring to because uh, I guess not only for uh, the the uh, uh, the president uh, Jair Bolsonaro but of uh, Brazil but also his uh, I guess his environment minister sort of echoed uh, a comment recently about about doing this, uh, wanting to take take these territories. Yes, that's right. So actually there has been a lot of contestation to the measures taken by the environmental minister uh, because actually he, he talked and he advised uh, that um, the different ministries take advantage of the pandemic in order to advance uh, legalizations and other measures, uh, legalization of land and other uh, measures um, that help agribusiness or other kind of extractive industries in the Amazon. So mm. taking advantage of the uh, focus of the media on the pandemic situation mm. in this region. Now, uh, uh, Diana, for, for people that are not familiar with, with the way the Amazon and Brazil is set up in terms of mm-hmm. uh, how, how it's operating, can you give us a little bit of a background in terms of, of, of the structure and, and what is happening down there? Yes, I think, uh, yeah, to understand a little bit about the Amazon, we had to go back uh, and uh, see that uh, all the historical formation or, or the imaginary that people have about mm. the Amazon. Mm. So the legal Amazon is um, com- is um, confirm- uh, of uh, nine states in the Amazon. So mm. when we refer to the illegal Amazon, we are referring to nine states states okay. of the Amazon bioma. So it's the, it's the region with the highest number of conflicts, deaths and threats, mm. because all governments have understood the forest as an empty territory for mm. exploration, for exploitation. Wow. So uh, if we go back to the military dictatorship in 1964 uh, till 1985, uh, they, they basically uh, throw a propaganda and that uh, basically we have to um, conquer the green desert or the land without men for men without land. And I'm quoting there. So um, even uh, the center-left governments of Lula da Silva and Dilma Rousseff continue with this idea of uh, the Amazon as an empty territory. Uh, of course, with a little bit of uh, a different approach, more focus on human rights. But this idea that uh, the people, uh, the indigenous people and the traditional peoples are not there, uh, they don't have a state about the territory. So with Jair Bolsonaro, however, uh, he has launched uh, forest exploitation at uh, an presidential level uh, since uh, the democratization of the country in in, um, 1985. Um, And then it became clear uh, since 2018, since his electoral campaign, that he wanted to fight and to conquer that territory in his own world. So basically what we have seen is basically a prolongation of this idea that we have to continue exploiting the Amazon and the forest and that people there, uh, they need to be integrated in the territory. 
Um, there has been, uh, of course, a different view in Bolsonaro that is interesting. So before, indigenous people were seen not really as a human, but he is basically changing the idea that, okay, they are humans and uh, they basically need to integrate and they want to be also capitalist and participate in the economy. So it's our basically uh, responsibility to bring indigenous people back in, in the economy and basically put them to work and, 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 and basically uh, help them a little bit in that sense. Hmm. Wow, there's some interesting uh, a choice of words that uh, they're throwing around there. An empty territory, a green desert. That's, mm -hmm. wow, a green desert. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, wow, uh, yikes. Maybe turn it into a, a desert uh, <laughs> by what they're doing, perhaps. But uh, and, and not seeing the indigenous people as human, uh, I guess that's not new. We've certainly seen that in other parts of the world that uh, where we see this kind of thing uh, uh, happening. The, the Amazon is such a, a, an important part of the, of the globe environmentally. Um, do you think that that is recognized by the government of Brazil? Do you think that they just don't care? What do you think the situation is? Um... Uh, well, um, Bolsonaro and uh, his followers basically are spreading the idea that um, climate change is a Marxist hoax. Ah. This is really familiar probably here in the, in the north as well uh, mm. with our neighbor. But um, basically that um, climate change does not exist and that um, the Amazon is, in, is a way to recover nationalism and a way to recover nationalism is basically putting them in the, the territory to produce. So basically, mm. I don't see a really um, um, uh, a genuine interest in um, the, uh, the forest conservation. And uh, since uh, the government since and um, that is not believing in climate change, I don't think uh, the, actually the efforts are um, uh, to protect the forests are real and genuine. And actually what we have seen recently, because there has been a lot of outrage about uh, the, the last uh, fire forest uh, the last year and also this year with the unprecedented uh, deforestation rates. Um, and a lot of pressure from um, uh, companies in, in, in Europe and North America to basically boycott uh, Brazilian produce. Um, and the government is, is sort of reacting, but not because they think uh, that the Amazon is this rich, biodiverse uh, place, but more because that can affect the interest of the uh, um, uh, Brazilian companies. Hmm. What is the relationship between the uh, Brazil, its government, and its indigenous people? And you, you've talked about the territories, these these nine areas, and you know you you kind of gave us a, a, a basic idea of, of of what their perception is that they want this land. I believe it's uh, it, it's a huge area that I believe they're they're trying to uh, to get their hands on. Um, 
9.8 million hectares of indigenous uh, traditional territories. That sounds like quite a large area. Um, and uh, I believe Bolsonaro says he is not going to uh, not going to change his view on giving one one centimeter of that back to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And actually, um, um, again, it's like a continuation of the same policies, this idea that uh, we need to regularize land and, mm. and like grabbing um, is happening or it has happened um, in Brazil in two levels. First, we see um, what there are, there are several uh, claims on indigenous territories. So the, uh, the process to legalization of indigenous territories is a very long path. And, mm. and it started basically with the anthropological study of the community. And an important step is the demarcation of the land. Uh, when the la once the land is demarcated, uh, uh, then there's like a, a sort of easier process in this um, um, legalization of the land. Um, but what we have seen with the Bolsonaro is that um, uh, basically a dismantling of the um, um, environmental le legislation and the legislation that protect indigenous people, but also at least two provisional measures or bills that uh, actually um, tend, uh, want to dispossess indigenous people, basically um, uh, legalize um, invaders or uh, grabbers, uh, land grabbers mm -hmm. that they have in the, uh, they are in the indigenous territories since 2018 and uh, give them uh, titles, even though uh, those territories are also claimed by indigenous people. So we have seen uh, in Brazil right now uh, that uh, land grabbing is happening at two levels. One on the territory is uh, the most violent uh, region in uh, Brazil, especially uh, indigenous peoples are um, dispossessed, displaced of their territory, but they are also dying because of those um, grabbers are killing some of the people. So the, the land is taken uh, materially, I mean, uh, that those people are displacing or and cleaning up the land of the rightful uh, occupants. And the forest is also clear uh, to consolidate appropriation. So that's why we see these uh, fires because they are clearing the land, deforestating. So once it's deforestating, they are taking possession of the land. Um, but another plan, and this is enforced with the government uh, of Bolsonaro, is on paper. So um, through the magic chemistry of notaries or land agencies, the land from the public, uh, the union that is basically like uh, the crown land here in, in, in Canada, that is not yet uh, in possession of the indigenous people because they are uh, in the process of legalization, is detached and transferred to the private owners, land owners. Um, and so the process, this crime of uh, basically clearing the land, consolidating appropriation, um, putting fire on the land is legalized um, uh, under the Bolsonaro government's uh, through papers and uh, land titling. Hmm. It, it, you know, when, when I hear this, it's um, given that we're now in the year 2020 and we've learned so much about our planet and so much about each other 
and about living together and about all of this. It's it's surprising in some levels that we still hear about this kind of thing going on. Um, is there is there outside pressure? You mentioned a little bit of of, of this um, for other governments or or other, as you say, businesses to to step in and say, you know, that we can't do business this way anymore. It's got to change. Uh, yes, there have been some uh, pressure from people, especially. Uh, from companies, especially uh, buying uh, soy or buying uh, meat, um, and, uh, meat that is exported to European countries. But actually, mm. I hope that that movement is going to take off soon because um, uh, I think that that's probably the only way that the Bolsonaro government is going to feel the need to, mm. to do something about that. Right. Um, so the pressure is coming, especially from England and uh, other European countries, um, and also from inside. Um, right. and the opposition um, has been very strong uh, to stop some of those regulations. So right. uh, one of the bills uh, that um, the, govern the government proposed at the last year was stopped. Um, and this was on, not only because of international pressure, but also because of the work of uh, many Brazilian environmental, environmentalists. Hey, we'll come back to that in a moment. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure to have with us on the show Diana Cordoba. She is an assistant professor with Global Development Studies at Queen's University. We're discussing a, a, an article that she co-authored uh, in the conversation and it is uh, entitled indigenous and afro-brazilian lands under uh, that are under a greater threat in brazil during covid-19 now uh, we talked a little bit about about that and how the government is is trying to take advantage of covid-19 to use to its advantage to try and uh, uh, take these these uh, 9.8 million hectares of land away from indigenous or or at least uh, start to uh, use them for for other purposes um, Diana, do we know do what do we know what the the, the indigenous population is of Brazil? Yes, it's around uh, nine hundred thousand people, most okay. of them in the Brazilian Amazon. Mm. And you know, you mentioned that that they're they're at risk. The territories uh, of the, the of the the people are at risk because of COVID nineteen. But it, it's not just the government taking advantage because the world is looking elsewhere and the media is focused elsewhere. It's also because um, the the people themselves, uh, I understand, are also the ones that are uh, the indigenous people are the ones that are at most risk of of developing COVID-19. They've had a very high rate of COVID-19 within their communities and, and loss of people. Yes, that's true. So uh, that data from the pandemic shows that indigenous people are getting sick and dying at higher rates than um, the Brazilian population. So, um, and one of the problems is also uh, the ser health services they have. So, um, most of the indigenous people live in the Amazon region where the nearest hospital is very far. So, they have to travel by boat. Um, and they have also limited care. 
So if you have, for example, an ICU, but you don't have electricity, uh, that does not work. So um, indigenous people also have higher rates of uh, obesity and malnutrition. So that Mm. makes them more uh, propense to die of COVID-19. And actually, um, recently, at the beginning of the month, um, the Brazilian um, Supreme Court um, um, uh, suggest, not suggest, but um, told the government that they had to prevent, to make a plan to prevent mm. the entrance of um, uh, mm. alien people to the indigenous tra- territories. Mm. Because um, most uh, most of the uh, um, what they call garimberos that are illegal mining are around indigenous territories, and we mm. are more or less talking about one million of illegal miners that are wow. uh, basically doing mining activities in those uh, close to those communities, bringing COVID to those communities. Yeah! Wow. Um, now there are uh, there are people that are uh, within the government. There's a, a, a wing, uh, I guess, of the devar- de, uh, department within the uh, Brazilian government, the National Indian Foundation, uh, fin- F-U-N-A-I. Funai, yeah. Funai. Um, now they, I guess, are are working on behalf of the the indigenous uh, population. Um, and there was, uh, I guess, uh, I guess they tried to pass a bill uh, of sorts on May twelfth that was, uh, it failed. Um, however, that that minor set minor of success was also um, overshadowed by by another bill that was proposed within a couple of days. Yeah, we have a bill that is. Uh proposed right now that is in the process of uh, being approved uh, by the Congress. Uh, but um, the measure you uh, mentioned is uh, a different uh, measure that is uh, more or more like a, a new guideline for the National mm. Indian Foundation. Okay. So that, uh, as you say, is the Brazilian government body that establishes and carries out policies related to indigenous people. So uh, they are basically responsible for mapping out and protecting lands traditionally inhabited and used by communities, indigenous communities. So uh, with the new guideline, uh, the Bolsonaro government wanted to remove data from uh, the land management system, CGF. So um, those uh, lands that are not yet approved or demarcated or recognized by the state, so they don't have the titles, they are going to disappear. And Mm. as a result of this guideline, uh, 237 territories that are still pending demarcations were excluded from a pen, making them subject to appropriation by agribusiness people who already have activities in those uh, territories. Mm. At one point in your article, you point out that, uh, as an example, there is uh, a large mining, uh, at least one large mining company, that is is planting palm oil trees uh, in 75% of the Nova Nova Betal territory. Is that good or is that bad? What is the significance of palm palm oil trees? Well, uh, that's what we are uh, researching right now in, okay. in the Amazon. So there are different initiatives, agribusiness initiatives in, 
in this region and, and different agribusiness practices. So uh, the first thing I, I want to say is that we cannot generalize and say, okay, uh, palm oil is evil, evil, evil and mm. then um, uh, it's bad and, uh, and all the practices of these companies are bad. Uh, the specific case we uh, wrote about in this article is about uh, the Vale is uh, one of the largest mining companies that decide, decided to invest in palm oil in, in, in the state of Pará. So um, they are trying to involve uh, small farmers in uh, uh, through contract farming scheme, schemes, and they actually uh, have um, planted themselves um, some hectares, um, around 1,000 hectares of, uh, of palm oil in the claimed territory of the um, um, of these uh, Quilombola community, and thus other part of other part of the territory is also planted through contract farming schemes. Mm. So. Uh, yeah, it's an uh, initiative that started more or less five years ago. We are still like seeing and what are the results of these initiatives. Mm. When the land is cleared in, in, in Brazil and in the Amazon, um, one, first of all, what is it being cleared of? What is the natural vegetation that is growing there? It's rainforest. Okay, uh, an, an old rainforest, I mean, mm. no doubt. Yeah, they, you have... Uh, um, primary or, uh, or secondary, the indigenous people have uh, also, it's not like an intact forest. Uh, they mm. have already, they, they have their own ways of uh, uh, growing uh, and, and, and managing the forest. So it's, right. of, it's, a, it's a human, uh, non-human, human nature interaction. So it's yes. not like a... Um, touch forest, but it's a yes. forest that is uh, managed by indigenous and traditional people. And of course, once they do that, that that also uh, eliminates uh, uh, the traditional area for the for not only the plants but also the animals that live there. Yes, hunting is very important for uh, indigenous people, and not only for indigenous people, but also for traditional people who have who depend uh, yeah. on uh, bush meat to live. Yes. Once it is cleared, what is being put, in, what are they using the land for? Cattle is Cattle. Uh, very common. So you have pastures uh, in the land. And, and then um, uh, basically a, a commercial crop that can be pepper, can be um, uh, soy or uh, palm oil or mm. things like that. Hmm. Okay, now the other thing, uh, just before we wrap up, there's one other thing that, that they are doing. They've start to, they started to launch a campaign um, uh, about this as well. Quilombola Lives yes. Matter? Mm -hmm. So that, uh, because um, what we have heard in the media is very much focused on indigenous people and how actually uh, those communities are suffering from uh, the effects of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, let's have said about the Quilombola people or Afro-descendant people mm -hmm. in Brazil and basically the, how they have been neglected. Um, mm -hmm. um, the, um, 
they are basically um, having problems to face um, COVID-19 and more or less at the same level mm. of indigenous people. And they have launched this campaign of a Quilombola Lives Matter mm-hmm. um, to b- basically bring attention to the needs of a, a Quilombola people and not only about um, that they are also dying at a higher rate than the rest of Brazilian, but also that uh, they assist and they and they need to be their rights to the land and need to be protected as well. Right, uh, Diana. Just before we leave, what would you like to see people do, uh, or or what would you suggest at this point in time for people to do to uh, to help this situation and help the, the indigenous people? I think uh, one important uh, uh, action that we as uh, uh, citizens can do is to pressure governments and um, to um, basically to to uh, take measures about uh, products coming from the Amazon, like um, uh, boycotting uh, Brazilian uh, produce that is coming from the Amazon at this mm. moment, because right. actually uh, that's going to hurt and harm uh, the pockets of these agribusiness elites. Okay, well, that sounds great. We're going to have to leave our conversation there, but I would really like to uh, follow up with you at a later date, if that's possible, to uh, catch up and, and follow up on this and see what is what has happened or not happened uh, and, and just give us an update. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, David. That is Diana Cordoba. She is an assistant professor of global development studies at Queen's University in Ontario. And it was a pleasure to have her on the show. And it's always a pleasure to have you listening to the show right here on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. And we'll catch you next time right here on Moment of Truth. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.